0: Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 It can be found in the Bibles that we've given you kids on page 555 It will be in verses um, 1 through 9 today In the first four chapters, the preacher has done a pretty good job of uh, convincing us that life under the sun is vanity and like chasing after the wind. He's told us that the pursuit of pleasure, no matter in what form, whether it be amusement or food and drink or projects or fame or fortune or even wisdom, is all vapor. It's vanishing. It's not lasting. There's nothing new under the sun and the preacher has seen it all. And he says that nothing satisfies. And we understand in our own life, if we're honest with ourselves, that we also agree that nothing satisfies. And the preacher is not telling us something we don't know. It's just that he has gone further than we have explored and come back from that expedition telling us exactly the same thing. No matter how wise or foolish one person is, their end in life is all the same we all wind up in the ground. And so we've been trying to make sense of life under the sun, trying to figure out how we can make the most of this life that we have. And the preacher's answer thus far has simply been, enjoy the moment. It's a gift from God. Enjoy the simple pleasures. And the preacher doesn't say much about what comes in the life after this, Because as we thought about last week, he hasn't seen that life. He hasn't observed it. All he's observed is what we have here. But he appears confident in the life to come. Confident in God's justice, confident in God's righteousness, and the worth of doing good in this life. But how should we live if we want to find meaning in a world that's full of vapor? Where does meaning in this life come from then? As far, this book has been a permissive book. It's been very vague. Do good and do what seems good to you. Don't get too worked up about anything, whether good or bad. Don't take the highs too seriously or the lows too seriously because there is a time and a season for everything. In the first four chapters, the preacher has told us what I observe. I saw this. I perceive that. This is what seems good to man. But I hope you notice today that the tone changes. It moves from um, the first person or the third person, the way that the preacher's been speaking. And today it goes to second person. The preacher directly addresses us. So what we read today is the preacher's instruction to us. The preacher directs the attention of the citizens of the world apart from God to the God who is there, to the God who exists in the world of vapor. And while vanity and vapor characterize this land under the sun, we all must understand that there is a God who created it and still rules over it and provides meaning in it. He is not a vapor. And he is the only sure thing in all of creation. And so how we respond to him matters. So let's begin reading in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. This is God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. This is God's word. You, God. So my summary sentence for our sermon today is, even in a life of vanity you must fear God. Even in a life of vanity, you must fear God. And so in our time together, I'd like to consider, first of all, what it means to fear God. And then in our text, we'll see that, one, fearing God, we fear God by listening to Him. And secondly, we fear God by acknowledging our place before God. And then lastly, we fear God by entrusting ourselves to him. We fear God by entrusting ourselves to him. So first of all, what does it mean to fear God? I think that fearing God is the theme of our passage because we see that there in verse 7. Um, uh, but, the God, but God is the one you must fear. And then in verse 1, you, you see that guard your steps when you go to the house of of God, So be careful, be careful in your relationship, be careful in how you approach God. So <clears throat> what does it mean to fear God? Luther wrestled, Martin Luther wrestled with this concept as well. What does it mean to to fear God? And he broke fearing, fearing down into into two forms. You have a servile fear and you have a, fi, a filial fear. A servile fear is the fear that a prisoner has for their captor or a slave has for their bad-intentioned intended uh, master, their wicked master. A A filial fear comes from the Latin word for family, and it's the fear a child has for his father. Luther likened this to the love and respect a child has for their mother or father and wants to please them in their life. R.C. Sproul said that they have a, a fear of offending the one he loves. He has a fear for offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or punishment, but because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is in that child's life, the source of security and love and meaning. And so our fear of God is more related to that filial fear than it is a servile Fear. We're more related to the, the, the fear that a child has for their father as opposed to that uh, a slave has to a hard taskmaster. Yet this doesn't mean that we should be flippant in our approach to God. So we should guard our steps when we approach him, even if we fear him the way that a child fears their father. God is a holy, righteous, all-powerful God that is worthy of all praise and of our very lives. I heard a podcast this week, some of you probably <coughs> maybe know where I'm going with this, in which someone tried to explain this, this concept of fearing God. <coughs> and they were trying to explain the concept as it, as it appears in Exodus twenty twenty. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him, that the fear of God may be before you, that you may not sin. And so do not fear, but yet fear him. So what does this mean? Well, the guy on the podcast told a story of how his family was with some friends on a winter vacation in, in South Dakota. And they're walking across this frozen lake. And the father has this, his five-year-old son with him. And he's wearing these snow boots that he can't get any traction on. And as he walks... He slips and he falls, and he just falls flat on his face over and over again on this frozen lake. This doesn't pretend well for the trip because they're going up on this mountain, on this cliff, to look over this expanse uh, uh, of snow. And so they climb up on this rock, and they get to this point, this overlook, and there's ice and there's snow and there's leaves on the on the ground. And so Jim looks over the ledge, and he sees that there's this this drastic cliff this sheer cliff that falls about 30 feet to the to the um, frozen lake below and his son his five-year-old son in the tough boots um, walks out and he looks and jim grabs him and pulls him back and he he um and uh he he pulls him to his side and he realizes that if his son goes over this ledge he will surely die And he said, that's what the fear of the Lord is like. Banking on this life of vanity and vapor or finding your meaning here is like going over that ledge. God doesn't want you to go over the ledge and you don't have to worry about God pushing you or throwing you off of that ledge. But God does want you to fear the ledge so that you cling to him as your security and as your comfort. God gives us his law so that we obey it because we don't want to stumble. We don't want our feet to slip. Fearing God makes us aware of the ledge, makes us aware of the danger of life apart from God, and when instead we find our safety in him. Psalm one hundred twenty one three, He will not let your foot slip. slip. Psalm one nineteen one sixty five, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Psalm 17 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Guard your steps when you go to the household of God. Make sure to do his will. Make sure to follow his law so that you may not fall prey to the dangers of the life of vapor. So the response we should get from the preacher's message that all is vanity is not to relax. It doesn't matter. But rather, this world is vanity. So don't bank on it. But there is one who matters. The Lord who created it, who gives meaning to all things. Worship him. So we fear God. We fear God by listening to him. That's our, the, uh, the I guess it's the first point from the text. The second point of the sermon. We fear God by listening to him. We see that in verse one. If God created you and all the rest of creation by speaking and upholds that universe by the power of His voice, then what better thing for us to do than to listen to Him? The preacher says it's better than offering the sacrifice of fools. What's he talking about here? When when worshipers came to the temple, they would come quietly. And uh, Sidney Gradena says uh, this would foster a sense of divine presence and of human receptivity they would they would come quietly they would hear the priest read from god's law and explain what was read and he would offer prayers and the people would respond with songs and finally the priest would pronounce a a blessing on the people well some people wouldn't come to hear the word they would just come to offer their sacrifice just because they wanted their sin canceled out They felt there was no need for repentance. So they would just bring their weak, lame, blind offering of their flock to offer to God, thinking that he wouldn't see it. And the preacher says, that's a sacrifice of fools. In worse, verse one says they didn't even know they were doing evil. If you offer the sacrifice of fools, you don't know that you're offering the sacrifice of fools. So we don't come to worship and God in ways that seem good to us just to check the box. We may do nice things and throw some money into the collection box or offer some prayers or try to placate God and call it worship. But God isn't fooled. When we do these things, even our worship becomes offensive to God. People who do these things with no regard for for God or His Word are heaping judgment upon themselves and they don't even know they're doing it. I was talking to a guy this week who always tells me when he can't sleep, he he takes that time and he goes, man, I just pray for my family and I pray for everybody in the church. And I encouraged him this week, instead of just when you can't sleep, instead of just, just start praying for people, Why don't you just start listening? Why don't you take the approach of young Samuel and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What would you like for me to know about you? What would you like for me to know about myself? I'm reminded of the passage in Isaiah that says the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning to listen as one being taught. He's keeping him awake to listen, not to speak. Hey man, I want to hear more from you. Can we keep you awake so you can just tell me more of your stuff? God knows all of this stuff. He wakens us to listen. To listen to the God who created the universe is the privilege that we only have. God wants us to be a people of the ear. Don't believe me? Deuteronomy 4:10. Hear O Israel Deuteronomy 5 1 Hero Israel Deuteronomy 6 3 Hero Israel 6 4 Hero Israel 9 1 Hero Israel 1228 Hero Israel 20.30. 20, 23 Hero Israel 31.12. Hero Israel 31.13. Hero Israel One Isaiah 110 Hero Israel Isaiah 713 Hear, O Israel. Isaiah 28, 14. Hear, O Israel. Unless you think that it's just Old Testament people that he wants to listen. Matthew eleven fifteen. 15. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 19. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 40. I can do this all day. You want me to keep going? <laughs> Revelation 2, 7. He who has ears, let him hear. I got a list of them. We can do the whole thing if you want. Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. And the clearest one of them all. When Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark nine seven, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to God. We are destined to live a life of vanity if we do not listen to the Lord. This is the only way we may get divine wisdom and grow in our knowledge of the Lord so that we may think God's thoughts after him. This has been a very instructive thing for me this week and as I have considered my own devotional time. How much time do I spend listening versus talking? I keep a journal, and so I realized how much I just spend writing things to God. I pray over the church, and what I've tried to do this week is look over the folks I'm praying for that day and then just begin to read God's word. Not even pray for you, but just begin to read God's word. And as we do that, this is, God brings you to mind. God brings to, me, to, uh, to mind your needs in ways that I hadn't considered before or maybe ways that I'd forgotten or concerns that you have or struggles that you have that maybe we haven't talked about in a couple of months. This is the primary way that we hear from God, reading and hearing His Word. So I've tried to put the quiet Back in my quiet time. Read and allow God to speak through what is read. I'd like to point you to a verse we considered last week in 4.6 that says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Why is quietness so important in our lives? Because we hear from God. We listen. We're able to listen When we try to squeeze in our devotional time into a tight window, we don't allow God to speak through his word and through our thoughts as we consider his word. That's not to say that God can't get our attention in any number of ways. He certainly can. But I'm reminded of the Lord speaking to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, where God told Elijah to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains in broken pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think we tend to expect the Lord to speak through the dramatic events of life instead of keeping our ears peeled for the low whisper. Do we allow time for the Lord to speak in that way to us? Consequently, we order our, our worship services to build in our time here, a time to listen. We read a lot of scripture. We read a call to worship. We read an Old Testament reading. We read a New Testament reading. We read the sermon text. We read an assurance of pardon. We read a, um, a benediction. We expound upon the scripture. We t- work really hard to try to make the, the point of the sermon the point of the passage We want you to hear that in a couple of different ways so that we may, something may click for us. We may go, okay, now I understand what that's saying. So that it would produce fruit in our souls and in our hearts. We sing theologically rich hymns. We try to select hymns that reference scripture or teaching of theological truths. And oftentimes these hymns will lead us through situations in life. As we consider God's sovereignty in good times and in bad times. We're following Paul's exhortation to to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're listening to the Lord as we sing to one another and we're learning from him. We also allow for dead air. What does that mean? In a a previous church that I was in, in a megachurch, if I would do like like the uh, announcements or the prayer, or you know, welcome or something, they would say, OK, before during that last stanza, you need to be walking out there. You need to be headed to the center because we cannot have something not happening on the stage. We got to have action, 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 action. You don't want to have any silence. Well, we build silence into what we do here. There's a reason that no one's waiting there to come up when when someone's done here, they start moving and then someone gets up to build time to build silence. So uh, we don't um, uh, we allow for these breaks. We want the quiet. God speaks in the quiet. We finish our sermon with a We finish our service with a time of silent reflection. Why do we do that? So that you may consider what you've heard. Specifically, what the Lord has impressed upon you in this time together. We encourage relationships to not only uh, so to help us not only hear God's word, but to obey it. In the New Testament, hearing God is equated with obeying what you heard. Jesus in Luke six forty six says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? We show what we have heard the Lord when we obey the Lord. So we want to hold one another accountable to what we have heard by calling one another to obedience. All of this is done so that we may listen. We fear God by listening to him. Secondly, we fear God by acknowledging our place before God. We fear God by acknowledging our place before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. We prayed that in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The preacher is calling the uh, uh, us to the tremendous distance between God and man. God is in heaven and we are on earth. God is far above us and is far superior to us. God is the almighty creator king and we are the created so this affects how we approach God. You may think, yeah, but Jesus came. So we have a different relationship now with him than we used to. We have a different relationship than the Old Testament faithful did. And in one way, you'd be right. How would we be ever expect to to, uh, to speak to the God who is in heaven, who is far above and who's Superior to us how would we ever expect the almighty creator king to speak or to listen to us created beings if it were not for the mediatorial work of Christ we have the boldness we have to come before the throne because of Christ and his work we could never presume to be heard or to have the Lord speak to us if not for Christ's work on our behalf and his interceding at the right hand of the father even now So when we acknowledge our place before the Lord, this affects how we pray. So that's a sub point in in this in this section. We acknowledge our place when we acknowledge our place before God, this affects how we pray. We see that in verses two and three. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. If you're meeting with the mayor or governor or. The president or a king, you know not to be rash with your mouth. You just don't go blabbering a bunch of stuff. Right? You don't barrage them with words. You allow them to speak and you guard your words. This is one of the challenges I have in journaling. You know, I mean I just start writing about something I may be struggling with, but how do I know I'm hearing from God and not just working out something in my own head? It's better to start the start with hearing the Lord than hearing from the Lord than hearing my own voice. Now, of course, we are free to share our thoughts and our concerns with God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But I'd also like us to consider Jesus's words in Matthew 6, right before he gives us the Lord's prayer, where he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, how would your prayers change if you realize that the one you're praying to knows what you need before you ask it? So it's not like, okay, I'm just going to fill you in on what's been going on. I know what's going on. I know what's going on. Would you like to hear from me on the matter? Yes, we come to the Lord who is in heaven. And it does create in us a sense of reverence and awe. And we watch our words. But we also are not addressing a stranger who is unfamiliar with you. He knows your needs. He knows your desires. Listen to David's relationship with the Lord in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And he goes on to present his request to God, interspersed with acknowledgments and reminders of of God's perfect knowledge of him and a prayer of praise. But then at the end, Given God's knowledge of him, David asked the Lord to search him, to know him, and to show David what he sees. So he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a wonderful prayer to a holy, divine, almighty creator God, in which David knows to whom he is speaking, And he guards his steps because of that. But you may think, well, yeah, well, that's David. That's the guy after God's own heart. Of course he would speak to him that way. But brothers and sisters, we are afforded the same relationship with our creator God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Formerly, uh, Galatians 4.8 9, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn your back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And even in our... um, um, yeah, we believe that. Um, <clears throat> these are mind boggling realities for us. We should be careful when we approach God because He is other. He is separate from us. He is the Almighty God. But He is not a stranger. And He knows us. And what joy it is to come into the presence of the Lord to be known by Him. Don't rob yourself of that privilege. For a dream comes with much business, verse 3 says, and a fool's voice with many words. He says that again down in verse 7. What he's doing, what the preacher's doing here is he's protecting us from having vanity creep into our worship. We live in a world of vanity and of striving to find something eternal. Don't drag the vanity of the world into our worship with the one true God. The only sure and certain thing in a universe of vapor. This is why we don't have sermon series on how to get ahead at work or have Houston Texan Sunday. Because we want to lead you in guarding your steps when you approach God. This is why we have theological themes in our worship service. We want to think about specific aspects of God, of God and his character that we encounter in today's text. This is why we have a prayer of adoration specifically designed not to ask God for anything, but rather to lead us in praise of God alone. This is why we'll have a prayer of confession later in the service, because we have seen God and who he is and we understand better about who we are. And so we respond with a prayer of confession that ends with an assurance of pardon, assuring one another that the Lord has heard our prayer and that he has forgiven us according to the promises in his word. Sure, we have a prayer for the people where we present our request to God, and that's an important and commanded, part, uh, commanded uh, prayer of the Lord. But that's a fraction of the prayers that we have in our service. We want to leave vanity behind when we hear that call to worship on Sunday morning. This is also why we encourage you to think about about ways that you may reflect on what you've heard in the sermon and speak to one another about what you've heard, centering our conversations on what we've heard from the Lord. We want to be clear, um, uh, to, to clear out space in our relationships with one another so that we may talk about lasting things. It doesn't preclude us from talking about the game or barbecue or whatever, what we did last weekend. But we want to lay aside the vanity of life so that we may set our minds on heavenly things when we acknowledge God when we acknowledge our place before God it also helps us to be careful in our vows we see that in verses four through seven making vows before the Lord is is uh, <clears throat> is basically trying to compel God to act I'll make a deal with you Lord if you do this I'll do this In some ways, making vows can be a careless way of bargaining with the Lord. Lord, I swear that if you heal me, I will do this for you. I've heard vows like that. But when you explain what that living for God looks like, they're out. "Eh, I had more in mind just doing a couple of nice things and we're even. Now, the preacher says it's better to not make those vows. Because you don't know the stakes. You, don't, you can't even control anything in your life. You can't make one of your hairs turn, uh, um, uh, turn uh, not turn gray on its own uh, yourself. And so how are you to bargain with the Lord? You're in no place to bargain with God. You don't know what your promise entails. You don't know what's right around the corner. You don't know how much will be demanded of you. Or you may try to, well, I'm going to do it. But then you make the commitment and you see, well, this is going to cost me more than I thought. So you try to be a man about it and go, we made a mistake. Uh, I'll own it. We made a mistake. But the preacher says, don't say it was a mistake. Fulfill the vows you've made. We hear that phrase that caught my attention most this week in this passage in verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice? What does your prayer life look like when God is angry at your voice? Fulfill your vows. You know, we see all kinds of vows made in the Bible. Some good, some bad, some unthinkable, some very confusing. Jacob made a vow in Genesis 28. Lord, if you'll be with me and you'll keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I'll say, come back home in peace, then you shall be my God. The audacity to make a vow like that. If you do this for me, then I'll make you my God. But God condescended to that prayer. God didn't strike him down on the spot and go, let me make something clear to you. He condescended to it. And he provided for him and Jacob fulfilled the vow. Hannah made a vow in 1 Samuel 1. Where if the Lord provided her with a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord. The Lord provided her a son and she brought him to Eli and he served at the house of God. We see tragic vows that were fulfilled like Jephthah in Judges 11, where he vowed that if the Lord gave him victory over the Ammonites, whatever came out of his door, he would offer as a burnt offering. We know where this is going. The Lord gives him victory over the Ammonites and his young daughter comes out the front door to meet him to celebrate with him over his victory. She, that young daughter, understood the importance of fulfilling the vow. And she said, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has come out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. Can't even make sense of it. We see in the New Testament Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five evidently vowed to give the proceeds of a land sale to the church or to the Lord, but they kept some back, and the Lord struck them dead. They didn't have to make the vow, but they did it, and so God expects the vow to be kept. Now, we make vows. We make vows in church. We make vows when we we make marriage vows. We make vows to tell the truth when in court. We make vows as elders when we um, 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 are ordained and we, we uh, vow with the Lord's help to shepherd and care for the church. We make vows when we join the church and we recite our church covenant. We, we make these vows with God's help. We don't enter into them lightly. We commit to them and we ask to be held to them. All of these show us that God is to be taken seriously. That God hears our prayer. God responds to prayer. And we have a responsibility to Him and we help one another to fear God and fight vanity in our worship of Him when we put aside senseless vows and we encourage one another according to the vows that God has led us to make inside the church to hold one another accountable and to love and care. Our last point We see in verses eight and nine, we fear God by entrusting ourselves to him. We fear God by entrusting ourselves to him. So we're back here in this familiar topic of oppression um, and uh, the violation of justice and righteousness that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. We're not surprised by oppression. Again, we talked about how we see it in every aspect of life. There's an oppression and there's misuse and abuse of authority at every turn. And sadly, there are pretenders of righteousness at every turn. But don't you don't think you can just if you're oppressed by someone, don't think you can go to their boss. The preacher's saying, don't think you can go to their boss and get it taken care of because there's oppression at that level, too. And don't think you can go over his head because there's oppression at that level, too. When we look at the oppression of the world, we should keep. One eye on the oppression and the other eye on the Lord. Because on the one in ultimate authority, uh, uh, the Lord is the one in ultimate authority overall. That's why we read that Ephesians passage. You can submit to oppression in this life because your master and their master is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. And so you can entrust yourself to him who judges justly by living under the impression in this oppression of this life by knowing that ultimately they will have to respond. They will be obligated to that one. You can entrust yourself in your prayers by saying, Lord, you see the oppression of the week, don't you? You'll do something about this, won't you? You've got this, don't you? The preacher says, you don't have to hope you you do have hope here in this life in one way and that is a king committed to cultivated fields what on earth does this mean right that king knows all the power he has in the land can't make a bean plant come out of the ground and all that power everybody on everybody in the kingdom will say yes sir and no sir and Right away, sir, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But he cannot make one kernel appear in the stalk. So as the king observes the times and the seasons of life, maybe he will wake up to the fact that his power and fame is fleeting and is limited. And all is vanity. And maybe one day he will learn to acknowledge the one to whom he must give an account. We can certainly pray to that end. We prayed for um, Judge Hidalgo to that end today. We will pray that we pray that they will acknowledge the Lord and see that He is He or, or she is concerned for the well-being of their people, and that they will have to they will know that they have to stand before the Lord who knows all things, and they will be without excuse on that day. So this is how we guard our steps in worship of our God. Vanity is at every turn. In the first four chapters, we've been left with the thought, is anything real? Is anything worthwhile? And the preacher says, yes, God is real and God is worthwhile. God is ruling over your life of vanity. So be careful how you approach him. Listen to him. This is how you guard yourself from falling prey to the life of vapor. Watch your words, he knows you. Rest in being known by him and praise the almighty God. You can't bargain with God. and Don't be discouraged in the world of its oppression and duplicity. God sees it all, he is not fooled. And trust yourself to him who judges justly. We'll see the Lord soon in all of this on that day Will make sense Let's pray Father we thank you for your patience with us We thank you for how you look over our vanity And our flippancy before you We thank you that Our Lord Jesus is at your right hand Interceding on behalf of this prayer right now Thank you for the privilege to be known by you. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear so that we may learn from you and so that we may live lives of meaning worthy of praise of you our creator. In Jesus name. Amen.